We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Ooh, Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. Final day on tour. Final day on tour at Rhombus Guys Brewing Grand in Grand Forks. It's, it's been a hell of a ride, folks. It has. It has. And uh, what are people saying about Midwest murder, Jonah? Well, big thanks to everyone who takes t- the time to rate and review us on iTunes. In fact, it's the best way for us to get recognized beyond the Midwest. And we love everybody in the Midwest, but we want everybody else to check out what we're talking about, too. So if you can help us. Climb the charts. That's uh, all you got to do. Jump into iTunes. Give us a review. Be honest and hopefully kind. This one comes from Bergen Rutten. 100 stars. Love this podcast. I look forward to it each week on my drives. Don and Jonah jive so well together. Although the topic is always gruesome, they never fail to make me giggle throughout. My mom and I always call each other after we listen to discuss the case further you should totally cover the murder of Drew Shadeen that occurred in Grand Forks 2003. Would love to hear the story unfold from the two of you. Bergen Rutten. Thank you. Thanks, Bergen. From Dawson Schefter. Uh, this guy, excellent. Came for the Midwest, stayed for the murder. That's our new tagline, so, folks. So you're going to see it on a t-shirt soon, but yeah, that that's one, part of us now. That one popped up in, in Bismarck, and we offered to buy the guy uh, a beer because it just happened in one of our comments. So... We owe him a beer and a t-shirt and and a hoodie and we owe him all the things. Yes, we do. So yeah, we weren't cool enough to come up with our own tagline. <laughs> One of our amazing fans did it for us, and hey, we will appreciate you to the very end. Yes. Yeah. So please, if you uh, if you wouldn't mind, rate review us on iTunes. Again, we we live and die by uh, an algorithm these days. So it helps. Uh, it helps move Midwest murder up the charts and, and does wonderful things for this little podcast of ours. So, and it could even, you. could even help us go on tour again someday. Might, so if you'd might. like to see us live, that helps too. We really do uh, appreciate again, all of you doing that. We also appreciate more than most things in the Midwest. We really appreciate truck stops w- that have lots of ranch, <laughs> lots of pie, caramel rolls, breakfast, burgers, and Crinkle everything fries. in between. Crinkle fries. Crinkle fries. Got to be crispy. Maybe a side of gravy. Maybe a side of ranch. In our hometown truck stop, Shots Crossroad is presenting this podcast here today. We really do love Shots Crossroads for everything they've done for me personally, especially in the wee hours of the night around 3 a.m. when I just needed that little extra something to get me ready for tomorrow. Yep. Shots Crossroads was there for me. Uh, They're always there. The truck stops are always there for us. So part of the heartland of the Midwest, we really do appreciate their support of Midwest Murder. They're open 24-7. You can catch the hardworking people there even on the holidays. And of course, they serve all six food groups any time of the day. And there are five food groups. No, there's... There's five in your world, but the rest of us understand pie is a sixth food group, and you can always get that at Shots Crossroads. Thank so you. Here, here is my fun fact from this that whole uh, that whole thing that we're you know, and Shots Crossroads has been such a great partner and sponsoring us, supporting us. The 
how much ranch do they make a day? Because nothing says Midwest more than ranch. Nothing says Midwest more than like, can I get that with a side of ranch? With a side of ranch. And at Shots Crossroads, they make eight gallons of ranch a day. A day. A day. It's wild to me. It's a lot. No you wonder. can bathe in that much ranch. Well, I would try. So in this episode of Midwest Murder, we are going to take you to Dickinson in November of 1981. The cost of a stamp had just been raised to 20 cents here. And Dickinson is, Dickinson, North Dakota is in the southwest part of the state near the Badlands, which are, of course, absolutely beautiful. If you've not been to that little corner of North Dakota, it is worth it. That area is also full of oil. So always part of the oil booms and busts and how those things flow, ebb and flow all the time. They also uncover some super cool dino fossils in that area. So it's, Dickinson actually has a a dinosaur museum um, that I cannot wait to check out. A little bit of a nerd that way. In the late fall of 1981, Ronald Reagan was still in the infancy of his presidency, having just taken office in that year. The AIDS virus had finally been identified, even though it was largely ignored at first. It was originally considered a pandemic, but is now considered an epidemic. Lady Diana Spencer became Princess Diana. She was the the people's princess. The first American test tube baby was born in Norfolk, Virginia, and Sandra Day O'Connor Uh, had just been appointed Supreme Court Justice and was also the first woman to take that bench. Wow. Took a while. Yeah. Took Uh, you long enough. mm -hmm. Can we add a few more? (laughs) Pope John Paul II was shot earlier that year, making room for the Pope Mobile. And lots of great classic... Did you say the Pope Mobile? The Pope Mobile. Was it like an armored car? Basically, but he like popped out of it. Oh. And just stood there and, and, you know, waved. Okay. It's cool. And like a Batman villain, but I'm, he's the Pope. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry okay. that he was shot. That's not, I'm not laughing at that or making fun of it. Yeah. It's just the Pope mobile. Sure. It's, that part's funny. Lots of uh, great classic movies were also released that year. History of the World Part One, Porky's, Chariots of Fire, Absence of Malice, which, you know, is the one I'm pretty sure when Sally Field, she won an Oscar for that. And that was when she said, you know, they like me. They really like me. In 1981, we were also suffering through the number one hit of Olivia Newton-John's Physical. It's a low point of the year. It was not, not good. Uh, Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones. And of course, one of my personal favorites, Private Eye by Hollow Notes. That is a good one. MTV launched, giving us a few good years of music videos. Six-year-old Adam Walsh went missing and his decapitated head was found two weeks later in Vero Beach, Florida, mm. changing a lot of uh, child uh, and, and, and making sure that there were a lot of protection laws out there. The longest professional baseball game was played between minor league baseball teams, Rochester Red Wings and Pawtucket Red Sox, lasting eight hours and 25 minutes, 33 innings. No, that's just too much baseball. That's <laughs> I, it's more baseball than I need in an entire year lasting hey, one game. I like baseball, so but that's that's a long one. And Ric Flair won his first World Heavyweight Wrestling Championship you know what in that Kansas. Means. You know what that means? Two claps in a Ric Woo! Flair. Exactly, yes. And Muhammad Ali fought his last fight ever, losing to Trevor Bernice. Bernice. Kind of a kind of a shame to see a legend go on in a loss like that. Yeah, for sure. So this uh, this case is going to be a little different than some of our others. This one is going to have a lot of uh, details about how the developments of law enforcement and criminology methods affected this case, and specifically in North Dakota. And I think it's going to become a goal of mine to to do that in other states as well, because learning about this it was was really, really cool. So you'll notice this one might be just a little different than the normal. Priscilla Dinkle, a 53-year-old mother of nine, grandmother to seven, had recently moved to Dickinson from Crystal, North Dakota, which is obviously in this neck of the woods near the Canadian border and uh, you know on the far eastern side of the state. 
her husband had a job in the oil patch and we make hay when the sun shines, right? So moving, you know, moving over there to support her family, moving over to Dickinson and being relatively new to Dickinson. And if anyone is familiar with an oil boom, it isn't difficult to find employment if you aren't in the energy field, especially these days. But it, yeah, was, the same, it was the same then, right? Not just the oil jobs. It's everything else that pops up around yeah, it. For exactly. Sure. So if people leave, you know, if they leave a regular job, somebody's got to fill that spot. So it's easy to do. So she was the manager of the Swanson Motel. And in its time, the Swanson Motel setup was common, and it was a legitimate motel. There's a tendency in the Midwest for people to call any hotel motel a motel. So regardless of of whether there's outside access or not, it's something I've always noticed, and I'm from here. There was no pool, no common gathering space, no modern-day amenities that we've all gotten so used to. So that's, that's what makes a motel. That's what, a motel yes, exactly. is a lack of amenities. Okay, so we're clear. <laughs> and, and outdoor access as well. Sure. So I'm told. So you grabbed your room key from the lobby, you walked outside and down the sidewalk to your room. So think Rosebud Motel from Schitt's Creek or even the Bates Motel, right? So oh. very, very similar to that. Great point of reference there on Bates. Sure. Yeah. Minus the mother. These days, you know, a building like this, if it's still standing, has been likely been turned into an efficiency apartment or a group of them. But in 1981, it was a typical roadside motel. It was a little sketchy, even at that time, and attracted some transient energy and some long-term oil workers. Yeah, motels also much more likely to offer rates for long-term stays. So Priscilla was working the night of November 14th, 1981. Also at the motel that night was her seven-year-old granddaughter, Danielle Lights. And we can only expect that they thought they were going to have a normal evening, but it was anything but. What would happen that night would change this community of Dickinson for decades to come. Everything appeared to be normal that evening, business as usual. The next morning, November 15th, a neighbor to the motel stopped by to have morning coffee and a chat. It was a daily practice for him and motel staff. When he walked into the motel, he found Priscilla, wearing a blue nightgown, face down, dead on the floor of the lobby. In the sleeping quarters of the office, he found Priscilla's granddaughter, Danelle, partially clothed in her strawberry shortcake pajamas, face down on the bed. Mm. What police uncovered as they began to process the scene was absolutely brutal and grisly, and it was something that they weren't too familiar with. So this appeared to have been the first double homicide in Dickinson's history, and only the second murder since 1970. And we're potentially talking a a generation or two of law enforcement careers without having any homicide experience. So even being in the heart of the oil patch where it gets a bad reputation for being rough and unsafe, having those types of stats, I think it's easy to say that it's a safe area at the time. It's, It's literally the definition of a place where you know all the faces you're seeing, this guy's coming to a motel well, just expecting for the most part. I mean, yeah, people are coming and, and that, going because it's, it's high energy. But you, you know field, your neighbors, but, you don't right. lock your doors, you probably don't lock not. your car. Right. It's it's yep. very trusting atmosphere, I think, is, is really the what I'm looking for. Absolutely. It's very yep. trusting. Yep. So Danelle, again, seven years old, was struck on the right side of her head with an object, fracturing her skull, but that was not fatal. What killed her was being strangled with a piece of an electrical cord. Marks on her wrist show that she had been bound at some point during the assault, but she was not restrained when her body was found. With her body being partially clothed, that would indicate the possibility of sexual assault. And her autopsy would later show that she was, in fact, sexually assaulted. Priscilla was also strangled with a piece of an electrical cord and had been bound with a ripped-off piece 
of that same cord from the appliances in the living quarters um, office area. She, similarly to her granddaughter, had been struck on the head with a blunt object. Investigators were unsure if she had also been sexually assaulted, but they assumed so by the way she was found. And obviously, in 1981, law enforcement investigations weren't as progressed or developed as they are now. No, so especially here, as you already to, said, the, their right. first murder and only one prior to this was 1970, no double homicides, and you've got some yeah. poor sheriff walking into this terrible situation. Right. Yeah, so we, they're and, less than ready for it, for so sure. So other than, yeah, so keeping that in mind, but we also have to keep in mind that, you know, it's, it's 1981, there's no so, DNA, there's no cameras, right, there's nothing. No, no, no surveillance. Nothing. You know, this is, everything's based on good old-fashioned police work at this point. So in December, not much about the case was known to the police, so about a month later, and even less was known by the community. Wow. Fingerprints had been taken at the scene, but it's a, it's a busy motel, right? So as you can imagine, think about how many different people w- would be in that motel in a day or two. So they were trying to rule people out left and right, all over, and they, and they were. So there were some leads that had taken them in a couple of different directions, but nothing showed to be concrete or take them anywhere that turned into anything of of value. And to make things more complicated, they didn't even have a solid idea of a motive. And originally thinking that burglary was a reason for the killings, right? I would be the first thing. Even that didn't hold water because there was only about $100 missing from the cash box along with some loose change. So $100, that's it. And it, yeah, a, a motel, aside from maybe having some cash in the drawer, it's not, it's not exactly a cash cow it's of anything that you're going yeah. to get. And yep. in terms of this, it's, it's dark, it's dingy. And if you're not looking out your, you've got your drapes closed. Nobody hangs out in their motel with their, with their curtains open. Especially so like eyewitnesses, yeah. very unlikely. So yep. you got a month with nothing here. So there didn't appear to be any signs of a struggle either. The office, the lobby, and living quarters hadn't even been turned upside down. If they had, any of us would have thought that indicated a burglary or that someone was looking for something of value. Sheriff Gerald Barnhart, one of the longest-serving police chief, chiefs in the Dickinson Police Department history, said, quote, there weren't things busted up or anything, end quote. Which is it's a nice it's way a great analysis. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's Just not busted up. Straight there to go. the point. Right. So approximately six months after the murders. Wow. Six months. Okay. A different detective took over the case in hopes that a fresh set of eyes might bring in some, some new leads or bring in a different perspective. And I, I think it's safe to say that the case was heading towards cold case status at this point. And Detective Jim Rice was quoted as saying that he sent fingerprints to different police departments around the country, but nothing turned up. So, sent them. So remember, this was 1981, APHIS, right. which is the automated uh, fingerprint identification system, and basically the database to store and analyze fingerprints wasn't even a thought at this point because it would not come to be a thing until 1999. So he's sending, he is sending these fingerprints to different police departments literally via snail mail. Just hoping, just hoping, hoping that- something will turn up. So yeah, because that's, I mean, that's the only way to do it. And then, you know, hoping for the best, basically, and that hoping that... Maybe there was a similar case. Maybe, you know, it's, it, you know, drums up some questions for a, a different agency. You know, how do you pick which agency is going to? You know, you, it's. You have a grandma and a baby girl dead in your mm-hmm. motel in a community that is terrified. You're pushing out there for every potential possible exactly. lead that you can stretch for. Yeah. 
Yeah. And six so, months I mean, later. Yeah, six months later. So Not I, I even think a suspect yet. This is, I think, what they talk about, you know, when, when they refer, when they say, you know, good old-fashioned police work. I think this is this is what they're referring to. Right. It this, means, that's what I would call it. I mean, you know, drilling down and, and deciding, you know, which one, where, where to send it, what area. You know, because at this point, they don't have any idea. And, you know, so, I mean, it just goes to show you, because we can Monday morning quarterback things every day. Um, all the time, any situation. And I know I have a tendency to do that on this show, but this is definitely where, where one of those, um, you have to kind of check yourself a little bit to remember that it is 1981 and things were dramatically different. Really technology has become one of the obviously greatest assets for law enforcement and maybe the biggest enemy for killers, serial killers. Yeah. Well, and yeah, really anybody in, in part of it. Cause I mean, if you have, and we, we could probably talk of for about three hours on just, on just that, but definitely, uh, definitely hinders cre- uh, committing a crime, you know, because at this point there's no, like you said earlier, there's no uh, cameras. There's nothing, you know, if you're driving down the street and you know, it, uh, they know where you're going, they know traffic cams, not so much in North Dakota cause there's laws against that. But as far as, um, you know, if you, if you look at, they can, they can bounce off yeah, their other, cell phone yeah, towers. And, and sure. you know, cell phone towers, they can look at, you know, the gas station across the street, they can look at those cameras, you know, so it's, it really is a different, it's a different thing. So law enforcement would continue to investigate hundreds of people. And in 1983, so two years later, still nothing had proven to turn up any solid leads or wow. even find a solid suspect. So given that there has been a a two-year difference, I think it is safe to say that it's officially cold. The fingerprints that had been mailed hadn't helped in any way, so they looked at a new way of solving the murders. They sent the details of the crime to the FBI to the attention of a psychological expert. What that division of the FBI would do with the details is paint a picture of the scene and then create a forensic profile. So even though this language... You're getting into like the John Douglas kind of stuff right here. This this is really awesome. I I would like to say that I'm not fangirling yet. Not, so, yet, but, not yet, but, uh, but no, this, it's, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. So even though this language is so common now, thanks to, you know, a million true crime shows, a million fake crime shows, a million true crime podcasts, mm. we, you know, we've, we're spoiled, right? So we have to remember that this information was still so new and that the behavioral sciences unit in, was in its infant stage having only been formed in 1974. So it's less than 10 years old. This is the kind of thing that a lot of the, a lot of the people in law enforcement who were doing old fashioned police work were pretty resistant to sure. these ideas. I would, uh, some. 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 No, it was. There was because an old guard that was resistant absolutely. to it. It's yep. well documented. Absolutely. Yep. But there was also some that was. Well, like, once let's it started, this, once it started right? working, then people started paying attention exactly. a lot more. Exactly. So in an article in the Bismarck Tribune in 1983, a detective that was interviewed on the case was explaining the simplicity of profiling and what it meant. So again, it seems so common today, but this was at a time when mental health was not discussed and frankly taboo to even mention it. Psychology was a type of magical hocus pocus. And in 1983, we weren't that far removed from ice pick lobotomies. The last one being uh, completed in 1967. So less than 20 years later, the study of the brain was just not widely accepted, especially in rural North Dakota. So in that same article, it stated that Dickinson police just really, really needs a state crime lab and state toxicologist. And then they, it also goes on to say that not long after the profile had been completed, oh, I, no, I ran, ran over myself. Sorry about that. Uh, so it is, um, 
they also said that the suspect list is shorter now and we don't feel that it was family and they have all been pretty much eliminated as suspects. So through the forensic analysis and the, the psychological analysis, they felt they were able to eliminate mm-hmm. certain suspects, particularly the family. Yeah. Yep. And okay. someone like super close to the family. You know, so a lot of these situations, that's where you look first. It's kind of process of elimination. Who was closest to the people who were murdered? Let's work our way through. Okay. Yep. Yep. And Chief Barnhart also said, he was quoted as saying, it was at our energy boom period. There were numbers and numbers of people in town that nobody knew. It's still pretty much wide open. So Dickinson Detective Jackie Martin, in addition to saying that we needed a state crime lab and a state toxicologist, added that we also needed a forensic pathologist. So at the time of the article in 1983, there was a bill before the state legislature that would create a state crime lab. Up until this point, it was just a small section of the state laboratories department, and it had been that way since the 1960s. So we're still very, very far behind the curve. And that that bill was passed eventually and thankfully, but it would still take almost four years for the state crime lab to be moved to the state's Department of Health in 1987. It wouldn't be until 1993 for the toxicology department to move to the state crime lab. And as far as a forensic pathologist, prior to 1994, there was no such thing in North Dakota. It was all based upon a a coroner system that was very, very archaic. Wow. So the development of the forensic pathology program would start in 1996 with the the hiring of the first medical examiner. So what the hell does all of this have to do with Dickinson Swanson Motel? And more importantly, Priscilla Dinkle and Danelle Lights. So remember, law enforcement strongly felt that those things were needed for not only this case, but countless others. So detectives were out there saying that if we have these things, we can solve these cases sooner. So our state was just so far behind. You know, so if those things would have been in existence or would have been efficient with funding or even just recognition from the state alone, the case probably wouldn't have gone as cold as it did. I mean, hopefully, hopefully not. So after that article in 1983, the case went even colder. Nothing would be done until late 1989, six years later, and even 1990 when the case was reopened by a new police chief. Wow. It's just like the, tragically, like the, it's a dark cloud hanging over this law enforcement agency. Everybody that signs on, this is pushed into the forefront. Right. And as I was researching this, I was looking to see past um, past police chiefs and you can you can just kind of see the pattern. So I think it was still definitely something that people worked on. You know, every couple of years they would switch detectives, which I think is, you know, standard operating procedure, but nothing just nothing, you know, kept going. So at this point, you know, almost a, a decade has passed since the double homicide, and they're keeping in mind, you know, the major developments of methods in law enforcement investigations would finally bring a much-needed boost to this tragic case. So, when asked if there was a specific reason as to why the renewed focus on the case, Chief Paul Bazzano refused to give a reason or discuss any of the details of it, but would say that it was once again being treated as a priority investigation. Okay, so 10 years later, skyrocketing to a priority investigation again. That's promising. But why? So, I mean, did new information come in that fired them up? Or was it just because of timing that things finally got going again? Or is he just 
blowing smoke too. New chief wants to get, draw maybe. some attention to himself. Maybe. Well, and maybe not draw some attention to himself. I think we all go, we would all go into a new position as, you know, going to change the world. Right. So I, I don't think it's a, a, I don't think it would be a Fair. malicious okay. thing, but, but I think, I think it's, it's important to note that, I mean, with, with the, again, now, now we are, you know, 30 years removed from, uh, ice pick lobotomies, those types of things. The, the behavioral sciences unit, you know, from the FBI is, you know, now 10 years older. They've proven themselves more. You know, these things are, are investigations at this point across changing. the country are they starting are to be more informed by behavioral science mm-hmm. and criminology. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's important to remember that, that that's, we were so far behind the curve, you know, so there was really nothing. I mean, what else could they do? Right. So, Chief Bazzano assigned a new detective to the case. Detective Chuck Rummel was a Dickinson native in his 30s and had been a patrolman prior to being transferred to the investigations division. Using the profile that the FBI had created years back, Detective Rummel dug deep. So, he he um, used that information that the profile provided and then cross-referenced it with a list of suspects. It did not take him long to come across a name that would stick out and cause the investigation to keep going. I like it. Well, I have a question. I have a question also. I'd I'd, I'd love to hear it. It's unrelated to the case, but another figure that has appeared in our investigations is BCI agent Arnie Rummel. And now I'm actually just kind of curious if him and Chuck are related and both have cool, you know, successful careers right, in right. law enforcement. Yeah. Arnie Rummel will appear later in another one of our podcasts, teaser alert. And he's a man that has investigated more than two dozen murders in his career by the time that we um, make the connection with him. So just save that. No, we'll have to, we'll have to find yeah, out. Yeah, that, that is Sorry. interesting. I think, well, the other day when you were doing that case, I was actually curious about that. So it's a, it's a good one. Uh, but I couldn't remember where I'd heard it. So cool. So here's my question. So again, it didn't take him long to come across a name that would stick out, right? And cause the investigation to keep going. So what year was the, uh, was the behavior profile done or the forensic profile done? Five, like, six like years 1983, ago. Yeah. Right. So almost 10 years later, did nobody do that before? Guess not. So no. Chuck, Chuck Rummel came in with big ideas. Right. It was, he wanted to use the actual behavioral information. That's why I was saying earlier, some of these, some of these cops, these old guard of cops didn't believe or understand in this new forensic methodology of studying criminals and either didn't want to do that or didn't think of it. I'm not knocking them. They were a product of their time. By no means am I trying to undermine them. So it's cool to see uh, Detective Chuck Rummel coming into the situation, accepting new methods of research and investigation and applying it. Well, and obviously, How quick, I mean, he comes in and gets a suspect in, in a, seems like almost instantly. Hey, should we just cross, cross reference this stuff and see what happens? I, it, it almost seems too easy for it, him. It almost seems too easy. Right. And, and, but also disappointing that however that was done before it, it didn't get done. So, well, and obviously hey, crossword puzzles are hard, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> well, I guess if that's, I mean, the New York times Sunday one is, but I mean, I think if you're, if you're doing good old fashioned police work, which is what these guys are used to use what you have. Right. So obviously there's, there is something to be said for getting a fresh set of eyes that matters. So 
what what was coming up out of this out of this investigation? What was coming up out of that cross cross reference? This name was someone that had ties to the family and someone who was not just a passerby or an oil field oil field worker. So even what the former police chief said is that it's just anybody who was in Dickinson at the time. See, and it's just so easy when you're in like a boom town like this, if you can't find someone to just pass it off on even I, I saw it in being in living in Minot, so many oil field oil field people they're bad they're villain and like we have a tendency to want to villainize an outsider in a lot of these situations and it's easy to do and sometimes they are guilty but on that it 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 just feels like it's easy you it's let it go yeah. too easy yep. it's we yep. couldn't find somebody it was probably a transplant worker that murdered these tor- these two poor people must have been because it couldn't it certainly couldn't be anybody in our community nobody no, in our this, community no, would do that right of course not no we know better by now right so, after waiting nearly 10 years, again, from the murder, they now have a suspect. So, who was this potential suspect? That guy was William Rieger, who lived in Batesville, Arkansas, now. So, within just a couple of days, with this major lead, Detective Rummel and an agent from the North Dakota BCI, which is basically like the State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigation, they flew to Arkansas to investigate further and hopefully interview Rieger, hopefully find him, hopefully set something up. And so you have to you have to admit that if if people are flying, especially in 1993, like it's they're they have found something and something of note. Or 91, pardon me. So in March of 1991, they finally got their chance to interview Rieger. After a couple of hours of interrogation and questioning, Detective Rummel was starting to notice how many traits of Rieger were matching up with a forensic profile. So was was there in the research specifically certain characteristics that he was displaying? Yes, yeah, okay. because they've got this forensic profile. That's part of it. You know, look for somebody who does this. Look for somebody who is this. And and they're things that only people involved in the investigation or in the case would know. So, I mean, using that, I guess, good sign, they didn't let up. They kept going. And it would continue to go on for many more hours. So he was Rieger, obviously, um, you know, I think if you're being interviewed for, a, you know, a day, you're going to, you're going to try and I don't know, say, you know, deny it and all that stuff. But he was starting to feel like he was losing the mind game of denying his role and feeling the pressure. He then finally confessed to the murders of 53 year old Priscilla Dinkle and her seven year old granddaughter, Danelle Lights. What was his reason? Oh, so is there a motive here? So he wanted to date Priscilla's daughter, but she didn't approve. That's it. Wow. He had, that's, that's the motive. I couldn't, you you declined me to date your daughter and so I'm going to rape and murder both you and your granddaughter. (sighs) Not that you ever need a reason to murder somebody. You don't like, you don't, no reason is good enough, but this one is, this one, you know, clearly no, you're, you're, you're dealing with someone who is not of a sound mind. Not well. So how is he connected to the family? Because that, that matters too. And he managed would, to hide for 10 years. Well, they didn't cross-reference. They didn't find him. He, and he thought he was getting away with it. He worked, uh, he worked with Priscilla's husband in the oil industry. So he was an oil field worker. But not at the time. And then after leaving the oil field, he was a longtime employee of the city of Dickinson, as well as a taxi driver. But as soon as the murders occurred, 
he bounced. He was out. He left. And when he left Dickinson, he left behind his wife and four children. What? So super classy stand-up dude here. I mean, he murders a grandma and her, and her granddaughter over rejection or spite, whatever you want to call it. Sexually assaults at least one, if not both of them, and then beats feet, leaving his established family behind with no word. Well, and I, that just it, it surprises me that the wife he left didn't feel odd, like you're t- about his timing on that, and and it didn't draw her draw her to some suspicious thoughts of I know nobody wants to think someone they love is a killer, right? And, and nobody, nobody can believe someone they know and love is capable of that. Not usually, anyways. Of course, sometimes there are signs, but some two people go go get murdered, and you dip. And I'm kind of surprised she didn't call the cops and say, "Hey, listen, I really love my husband, but it's really weird. He totally left us after those two people got murdered in the motel. Maybe you want to check him out." Well, it, he seems like a super cool guy, so I'm sure she wasn't cut up about him leaving. Yeah. No. Right. Of course. I mean, maybe I'm it sh- didn't. Maybe it didn't matter. I'm sure maybe. he was sending child support from afar in Arkansas. I'm, I'm sure, it's I'm it's sure. only safe to assume. I'm sure he was. Yes. So what happened when he when he left North Dakota? What did he do? So when he got to Arkansas, uh, none of those things, you know, murder, um, leaving a family, none of those things stopped him from marrying a lady named Patricia. What? This guy gets remarried. He gets remarried. So his wife, Patricia, describes him, Rieger, as a gentleman and a liar, but figured he was honest enough to tell her that he couldn't return to North Dakota, but didn't offer an explanation as to why. Let's discuss. Whoa. Well, to be fair, it is possible to be both a gentleman and a liar. I just... It, it is. You can be both. I think, I think you would They're call that guy... They're not mutually exclusive. You're right. You would call that guy a bullshitter at that sure. point, right? Not quite a con man, but maybe a bullshitter. And you don't bullshit a bullshitter. Of course I, you not. Know, I get it. We both never are con one. a con man. That too. They're that, super that, clever. This guy, this guy is so. What a piece of work, though. Yes. You and, you murder two people in cold blood, abandon your family, and just set up shop in Arkansas after that. Yeah, and just move on. And so, this woman kind of knows. Like, eh, I seem like kind of a scumbag, but not totally. So he's a little, he's a little sketch, but it's fine. Like, do it's, you think? Do you think the new wife knew about his old family? Oh gosh, no. You think he was not showing him the pictures of his kids from his wallet when he met her? No, no. no? I'm sure those got tossed out the window. Okay. I, so if you're marrying someone uh, and they can't return to a state, don't you want to know why? Wouldn't I mean? Is that and and maybe I'm maybe I'm being too nosy, but I feel like if I'm if I'm marrying someone, I want I want to know because that type of mystery is not sexy. That's 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 borderline felony, or it is a so felony. You, you a want lot. you wander into a new state and say, oh, I, you know, I'm I'm from North Dakota, but don't ever ask I me about that. I can never go back. Go back. back I can never go back there. Oh, Do you really? Want, Why? I how about I buy you dinner? <laughs> I, I, right. right? Is mean, that that's the opening. It, it must be, and I just so I have to wonder what Patricia's. Um, Mental, also, mental state is. To, to be fair, mystery is sexy. But not like this. It's also dangerous. Yeah, yes. Kind of like, yes. don't investigate weird noises. Don't wander off alone. Don't invite a stranger into your home. Don't pick up hitchhikers. These are not the mysteries those that are, are the mysteries sexy. That you wanna, yeah, those, those are not sexy That's how mysteries. you find, that's come to the Midwest, stay for the murder. Mm-hmm. That's how you're going to find yourself on an episode of Midwest Murder. Right. Yeah. 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 So just, I mean, ask better questions. I feel like it's, and I, 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 I'm, yes, it sounds like I'm making fun of Patricia, but I, I, again, 
I don't think we know what type of mental state she was she was in. If she was if she was able to fall for something, obviously he was a a, a bullshitter because he was able to to marry this woman. But hey, I'm not picking on Patricia one little bit. I get it. Right. Well, do you? No, I mean, I get, I get how you can fall, you can fall victim for the for cunning, charismatic people. Absolutely, and and that happens on both sides of the fence. Exactly. Yep. I just, you know, he was he was honest honest enough. He was a gentleman, but a liar. He was honest enough, honest enough to tell me he can never go back to where he came from. That was good enough for me. All right. Yeah. So after marrying Patricia, he became kind of a drifter. He was a truck driver for a while and then also became a carnival worker. All right. Fair. That's it. Carnival workers have always scared me. This is it. He's fulfilling all the stereotypes. I'm sorry. Sorry. And I I just... I know some people that ran away with the circus. They weren't right. He literally literally did. And and no offense to anybody who has done that job or anything like that, but this this guy is where that stereotype comes from, I, I feel like. He was a carny. Yes. Sorry, carnies so, of the world. We, you all need love, but eesh. Yeah. So during those times of being a drifter, he found his way onto law enforcement's radar. He had been accused of various murders around a few states. Of course he has. But I'm, I'm, so I'm curious if he was then telling Patricia, uh, nope, can't go back to this state either. It's like the, the, like the map where you, you know, count off the states that you've been to. It's like his, he's are the ones that he can't. He can't go back oh, to. I can't so, go back to that one. Yeah, so definitely a gentleman. Still definitely a gentleman. Great guy. Great guy. So after the confession, they they knew that they found their guy. They 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 knew it, and it was decided at that time that they would have enough to charge him with the murders. And interestingly enough, he had also been accused of the murder of a Batesville, Arkansas woman, seventy-seven year old Della Harding. Batesville, Arkansas police decide that they also have enough to charge him with her murder. So he's now facing three murder charges. And has been accused of murder of in multiple, other states. But they can't, they can't tie, him, tie him to it. What a maniac. So unfortunately, the charge of murder for Della Harding was eventually dropped because of what was, what was quote, a bungled investigation. The good old-fashioned police work didn't, didn't work that time? No, and I, I've, since doing this research, I've added the word bungled to my, to my, uh, my, my repertoire. It's a good word. Bungled. Well, don't go bungling things on this show. I won't. You bungle things job. in your own time. <laughs> that's that's your job. So anyway, uh, what was bungled about the investigation is basically an Arkansas law enforcement official, an investigator, just basically made stuff up regarding the investigation and search. So warrant stuff, the interrogation, and just like that, the charges were dropped because... He messed up and he was held accountable later, which he should be. So by Arkansas dropping that murder charge, while justice wasn't even close to being given to Della and her family, he was able to easily be extradited to North Dakota to face the charges here. So he's not getting away, hopefully. No. So in June 1992, over 10 years after the murders, trial was to begin. His attorneys tried to put forth a defense that he was not fit to stand trial, but the judge heard it. I hear you, but the judge quickly threw that out. And as the family was preparing to face the murder of their mother, grandmother, child, and niece, to hopefully, hopefully, bring what little closure they can to this, Rieger, who was 48 at the time, suffers a heart attack in his cell and dies. Wow. His attorney said that a factor in his heart attack was the stress caused by the trial. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was very stressful for you, sir. 
Well, and I, you got you got to love the defense attorney, and I, I they're doing their job, and I, I respect that. But you're trying to say this great gentleman and liar and bullshitter that has ran across multiple states, married two women, fathered four children, held multiple jobs, was somehow not fit to stand trial. Right. That's that's so paper thin. Do better on that one. I, right. this, do, this guy's done too much to do to, your to job. Be a, right. Do your job. It's. There, there is a time and a place for that defense. This one was not this is, it. This is You're not reaching it. for straws there. And I don't want to say that his attorney failed him because this guy is obviously not a good guy. But it's that's part of it, right? We deserve to have access to legal competent counsel. So, so that's weird. Is that? I don't know if it's fair to ask this, but we part of our our like the end of our intro is the justice that was ultimately delivered. Is this guy? dying in his cell before trial uh, before any of it is that is that was, a, is that justice was, was justice, justice delivered in that case i don't know i, our, our I'm not, ju- i i, I want to know actually i want to know your thoughts on it because our our judicial system is what some americans hang their hats on um, but we can obviously come up with with a, a flaw at the snap of a finger so he didn't stand before 12 of his peers he didn't stand before the judge for trial and he only to, to, he to be found to guilty face it. he didn't have to face it so is that the full dose of justice? It's it's probably not. It's it's almost more like vengeance from the universe in, in, in some capacity. But I, I'm wondering, where were the young girl's parents? So the, the grandmother and her granddaughter, is there any word from Danelle's mother in this yes. situation? So Danelle's mother, you know, and I'm sure you guys were asking yourself that as well. Like where Where was she? Uh, she has now lost her daughter and her mother in one evening. And Danelle was with her grandma because her mom was working that night. So she was putting food on the table. And that's what happened. You know, so a huge loss, like one uh, an unimaginable loss. And also what I would presume is an unimaginable amount of guilt that any of us would feel in that situation. You know, she's... She went to work. Her grandma went to work. Or her mom went to work. It's, it was easy, you know, easy to do. And they've they probably done it multiple times. Of course. Well, it, it, it was normal. That, that was, it was normal to hang right. out with grandma at the motel and probably helped out and were given some responsibilities and mm-hmm. these great things that you'd want to impart on a, a young child realistically. Sure. Yeah. So one of the other questions that kind of stuck with me throughout this whole thing and is is we were so far behind the curve with the state crime lab, toxicologist, forensic pathology program, et cetera. If the state had acted sooner, would this person have been brought to justice sooner? If if you want to call that justice, would would he have been found sooner? If you know was was the investigation um, with the De- Dickinson PD bungled? Did somebody did somebody go through that and just cross reference? characteristics it didn't seem to be that difficult it, certainly when rummel comes on the scene and makes that cross reference this case is it's a catalyst for this case that almost instantly leads to it being solved and that information was there at least five to six years prior i wouldn't go so far as to say this was bungled but it certainly i was, I was being dramatic yeah i don't know really yeah, like certainly word, could, though. It, i wanted to use it again could have been a million percent more more efficient, efficient. In, in that regard and und- undoubtedly that would have prevented him from going on and it sounds like that well, he was if he was suspected of these other murders chances are he had a hand in them and we already right. know he 
essentially got away with the one because of because of the investigation that was right. failed in Arkansas. Yep. Yep. He's accused of murder in other places. So yeah, because Would those of people still be alive. Would those you know? Be, because because yeah. of the lack the lack of follow through sure. on the information they were get right. they were given, he was allowed unfortunately to continue on his his murderous mm-hmm. ways. Right, right. So that one is that one's a that one's a doozy. And again, it was a little different than what we normally cover, uh, just because there weren't a lot of details of the 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 murder basically or the the event. What what really hindered this is just the lack of technology development and those types of things. And so I, I found that I found that very, um, very interesting well, because we, this isn't the only case like Nor- that. North Dakota was toward the way toward the back half of states that had that got an unofficial crime lab. We right. I know I don't think yeah. we were last to the effort, but we were amongst the last states mm-hmm. to get a crime lab. And even right. now, as we've grown, I believe we still just have. The one, and it's yeah, it's in the, yeah, it's in Bismarck. It's the yeah. only state crime lab. Yep. So resources for today: Dickinson Press, Bismarck Tribune, and Dickinson Police Department. A lot of information there. So, thank you for being here today. Check out Midwest Murder merch. Ask your service about Rhombus server about Rhombus guys merch. Uh, take excellent care of your bartenders and, and big, servers. Big thanks. big thank you again to everybody for being here mm-hmm. with us. Big thanks to Shots Crossroads, the legendary Midwest truck stop here in Minot that's been supporting us and fueling us on tour. Uh, shout out to the Crinkle Cut Fries with crispy fries, chicken strips, cider mm-hmm. ranch all day long. Number eighty eight. It's legendary. Get, you can get pie twenty four seven there. Unless people like me have eaten all the pie, there might be moments that you can't get it. But for because the most Jonah part, was there before you. Yeah, yeah, I'm there. I've yeah. eaten, especially the apple. So thanks to them. Thanks to CJ Wynn for writing our intro. Uh, Eric Michael Anderson for recording our amazing intro music, and to Nomad Design House for the wonderful Midwest Murder logo. This concludes the Midwest, the first official Midwest tour. Thank you, Grand Forks, for being here with us. Yeah.